Welcome to the LPP Podcast. This is a segment of the LPP Podcast called Sundays with Stories. I'm Zach Rhodes, and today I spoke with a man named Jason Terrell, who after a years-long addiction to drugs, jail time, and a felony that still weighs him down, managed to overcome addiction on his own without support groups, rehabs, or any additional addiction treatment. Actually, he was involved in addiction treatment for a while, which he says wound up only bogging him down. Such naturally occurring addiction recovery actually forms the basis for our Sundays with Stories series. The Life Process Program is a program that uses cognitive behavioral techniques to help people help themselves, as opposed to more traditional and mainstream treatment approaches which brand you with an addiction identity and tell you that there are uniform ways of living which you must adhere to or else you'll remain addicted forever. The stories we tell on Sundays with Stories oppose this ideological framework completely, and it's my pleasure to share Jason's natural recovery story with you today. Note that Jason is becoming increasingly involved in the harm reduction community. You can check out and join his Facebook group, Rethink Addiction, but he would like to do even more to educate the public where he can. He has felonies on his criminal record, which really hurt his chances at pursuing various careers, which he'd be great at. Um, And he's passionate about addiction and harm reduction. So if you're a like-minded individual and you know about opportunities that align with Jason's interests, then make sure you reach out and let him know. Or reach out to me, and I'll reach out to him. The guy's a wealth of knowledge, and he loves learning. In any case, please enjoy today's not-so-recovery story with a man who achieved life balance through mindfulness and common sense. This is my friend and yours, Jason Terrell. I'm here with Jason Terrell. Jason, thank you so much for being with me. Yeah, it's good to be here, Zach. Thanks for having me. Well, I got to say, you were the first. Um, well, actually, I just interviewed a colleague of mine who works in the Life Process Program, and he is, out of this series that we're doing, the first person to actually tell his own story. And in some ways, it's in such a great story. And then in some ways, it's like, well, he works with you. Maybe you're staging the story. So Stanton and I have been telling stories of celebrities for the past seven weeks or so on a YouTube channel as a way of saying, you know, because everyone kind of can track these celebrity stories. We all can read the cliff notes and know what happened in their advancement. And we can see how just normal life changes occurred. So whatever happened with their drug use or destructive alcohol use or whatever it was or sex, they managed to mature out of it by just finding connection with people, you know, good, meaningful work and purpose in life. And people started writing in saying, it's great that you can use these stories, but they're all hypothetical. You know, they're all uh, not hypothetical, abstract, because you don't have the person on. So I will have to tell you that you were the first person outside of our network that I'm lucky enough to talk to about your own story. I wonder if you could tell people just a little bit about who you are and where you're from and what it means that you've had an addiction in the past, if that's even something that you'd say. Uh, Well, my name is Jason. I'm a single dad. I'm from Virginia originally, a really small town. I moved to Florida when I was 14. Uh, I think I think a huge part of my story to point out is that when I was in middle school, I dealt with a lot of struggles with my peer group, bullying specifically, which I really think in, in my situation really set me up for for some difficulties. So so I had those experiences in middle school. You know, at the time I'm living in a small town. And then at 14, which is obviously you know, I mean, that's a that's a big time just starting puberty and all that. And then I'm moving to a completely different place, um, a bigger city, 
Uh, and I, I think within a couple years, you know, I'm, I'm experimenting with things and, and I really approached it with an intensity, <laughs> like a very serious intensity because, you know, there's two things going on. I really didn't feel great about myself. I didn't stand for a lot of things. Like I didn't have a lot of goals. Like it was just kind of like, whatever. Um, and you know, I was, I think I mentioned, I, I was curious. So, so I just, I just really took it and ran with it. You know, I started, you know, drinking, I started smoking weed. Um, and I, and I fell into a crowd that was, that was very open-minded to, to various experiences. And I, and I think early on it was somewhat innocent, but again, like I was, I was really approaching it in, in a, in a big way. And then of course, the thing about addiction is it just, it just evolved and it became in a way, a deep part of who I was. Like I thought of myself as a drug user and, you know, so, so it was, it was a worldview and a behavior, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So uh, you like took on the identity of someone who uses drugs. Yes, I did. I did. And, and I really kind of defended it and it was just like, this is, this is what I want to do, you know? And so at the time I didn't really see it as, as a problem. It was just, you know, it was me against the world kind of things. And, and it was the way I responded to life. I mean, I would look at people that would cope quote unquote normally with, with emotion as like weird. Like, why are they doing that? <laughs> why, why don't mm. they, why don't they smoke weed? Why don't they drink? It just doesn't, you know, <laughs> what's an example of that? Like you saw someone coping, uh, you know, without drugs, what, what, what kinds of things were you looking at and saying, huh, I wonder why they do that. I would say, you know, my, my family, it's just, it, you know, if, if something bad happens, you know, and they're just kind of walking through it and, and, and coping with it and, and whatever they way they do, I, I just saw that as a way to, to medicate and, and just kind of, kind of walk, walk through it. And that just became the way I dealt with things yeah. uh, for a long time. And, and not only that, you know, I was a very anxious person. I was very, I was very quiet. And I think deep inside, I always wanted to be the extrovert. I thought the extrovert was the was the person that that got everything, so to speak. So yeah, it just became it just became a lifestyle, and I started to get into trouble. I started to hurt the people that I care about. You know, I started to steal, and I started to do harder drugs, of course. And then um, and then the physical dependency factor came in, whether I was doing alcohol or opiates. And in my early twenties was my first introduction into to recovery or, or 12 step. And that's when I learned what my problem was, you know, for the first time, which is that I have a disease. I have an illness that's going to last forever. Um, I learned the, the tenets of, of what it means to be a recovering addict or a recovering alcoholic. And, and then I'm powerless, you know, I mean, you know what you're taught there. And, and, you know, what's really interesting is I went to the first rehab that I went to, it was, it was 15 months and I got, I went there because I had got into trouble and my counselor, um, she was in the program. She didn't, she didn't, I mean, meeting with her was more like talk therapy than just, just kind of having a conversation than what. I now know to be like cognitive behavior therapy or something like that. Like, mm. and this, this is, tw I'm 20 years old. I didn't learn what a cognitive distortion was until I was 30, you know, and I, <laughs> which is really interesting because CBT is really important for treating anxiety and depression and things like that. So, yeah, sure. you know, so it's like I went through two or three rehabs and never learned those things. 
there was such a focus on the 12 step model as being kind of the the way to get out of this so i just kept kind of beating my head against the wall like i never really dealt with i was diagnosed with social anxiety and i never really addressed that like i kept going to meetings thinking that was that was the solution to that like and, and i never shared like it was it was really hard to be there. Like it was kind of the opposite of what I needed to be doing to, to really get better. Um, so, so yeah, in and out, in and out. And then eventually I'm like, a lot of things happen. Number one, I was fired by a sponsor for not sharing in meetings. Like I told the guy, I said, Hey, you know, I have this issue. I do not like sharing in meetings. I'll do whatever else you tell me. You know, I just don't want to go to meetings. And I also told him that I'm going to take something for the anxiety. And he didn't like those two things. He said, no, you know, if you're not willing to do what I tell you um, and, and then then I'm going to fire you. <laughs> and I felt really defeated by that. Um, the, the next thing is my my girlfriend at the time was well, she was in Pennsylvania. She she passed away from heroin overdose, which was which was huge. Um, yeah, oh, so these, sorry to hear that. yeah, so finally I started Googling around and at the time questioning to me, like, I didn't see the need to question. I felt it was my problem. Like I was doing something wrong. Like I wasn't doing the fourth step, right. Or I wasn't going to enough meetings. There was always some reason why things weren't going right. So that's what I stumbled upon Dr. Stan Peel's work. I started to, to read Dr. Mark Lewis. I started to find all these different ways of thinking about addiction. And I mean, I was so happy to find this, but at the same time, like really angry because, you know, here I am been labeling myself this way for so long. And there's like this huge shift. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, it's me. I just need to figure this out. Kind of been going on a rant here. I'm going to pause. Is there anything you wanted to ask? Or? That was very well said and so interesting. So yeah, do you feel like even though this term is being overused so much recently, do you feel a sense that you were that gaslighting was happening? Like everything is suppo supposedly your fault, and so you felt like you couldn't question anything. Like you didn't have the basis to question anything, and then you found the work of people who sort of illustrated your own thoughts in words that were sensible and these are like smart people talking about how you know addiction is not a disease maybe you won't have it forever there are other ways to cope with it do you feel like you were be like you mentioned you're angry so i'm just curious do you feel like were you angry because you you feel like you've been lied to or you you'd been made feel guilty when you ne didn't necessarily need to feel that way yeah yeah i mean it, it was it was that i mean i was surrounded i mean because there's obviously very smart people in the program so I just trusted, I trusted it 100%. There was really for the longest time, no need to question because, you know, this is where the government sends you. This is, this is what every rehab is doing. So it has to be, there has to be something to it. Right. That's, the, that's really what I told myself. It's so prevalent. It's so common. This has got to be it. There's got to be something up with me. That's so um, true. So... <laughs> So, yeah, and finding, again, finding y'all's work was, was that moment, like, oh, my goodness. And then that's when I'm like, okay, so we have, you know, cancer, diabetes, and all these other ailments that we, that we use empiricism and science to treat. 
But here we have addiction where we have equine therapy where you're grabbing a horse hoof (laughs) (laughs) or, you know, or of course, 12 step and, 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 you know, believing you're an addict forever. And I mean, we talked about this the other day about the difference between the language between quitting smoking and drug addiction. I mean, most people that quit smoking, people go through slips, they figure out what works for them, whether it's Chantex, cold turkey, um, you know, people find their way. I mean, that's that's what they do. They they figure out what's going to work for them. I mean, if you go on Facebook groups, you don't hear about powerlessness. You you just, you know, people find their way. They make some mistakes and then they go about their business. They don't yeah. spend their lives talking about how they have a disease and and all these other things. And really, the way I see it now is that, you know, you could have somebody in the program for 10 years and there's nothing about that person that has any relationship to alcoholism or addiction that person's no longer struggling with the problem but their belief in it becomes the problem their belief in it becomes the addiction or the alcoholism because if they do decide to drink or they do decide to drug and you know their entire identity is based on not doing this thing what do you think is going to happen they're not going to believe in their ability to cope with it you know it's just going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy let's talk about uh, let's bring it back to you. You said you started using drugs destructively, kind of like at first it was a really, really useful tool for coping. And yes. I think that it's, it sounds like your downfall to that end is not that it wasn't a useful tool. It actually was, it, this wasn't illusory, but it was that it was your only tool. Like other people you noticed could get through situations in which they felt stress or anxiety and, or whatever it was, and that they could seem to cope with it somehow. And you're thinking, why aren't you using this like magical cure, you know, this like yes. one-stop cure and you, it sounds like you over relied on it. I mean, when I'm ta- I talk to you, I, n- I know I don't know you, but you sound like the kind of guy who has values that would say, don't steal. You're extremely polite. You're a nice guy. You're thoughtful. What do you think it was that allowed you to act antithetical to maybe values that you would otherwise hold and, and do things like steal or get caught in that kind of a cycle? I think the pain just become too hard to bear. You know, I mean, whether it was uh, the the physical withdrawal or the the psychological withdrawal, uh, just the battlefield, which was the mind at the time, which I've I've since learned to cope with through mindfulness and meditation and and other tools, was just. I mean, I just broke under the pressure of it, the the, the pressure of guilt and shame and all these other things. Um, I mean, and at the time, I didn't really have those standards that you're talking about. I lost those standards. I may have had them when I was younger, but I think I learned my way out of them and found justifications to not be the best person because, you know, I'm perpetuating this life, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. It's like you need to to survive. You'll do what you need to do to survive. Yes. Yes. And so what led you out of – eventually what led you out of – let me put it this way. If standard treatment of 12 steps and things like that, and that entire hegemony of ideas didn't work out for you, what did? Well, I, one of them that's integ- in, integral was, was uh, mindfulness and meditation. You know, for, for the longest time, I was, I was very identified and immersed in thought and emotion. I had no sense of stepping back from thinking, no sense of stepping back from emotion. I was just caught in the wave in it, in it, of it, if that makes any sense. So learning to find space and and living from a place of awareness, like I don't know 
I mean, I know mindfulness is incorporated in, in, um, in LPP, but is the language that I'm speaking now, do you, do you understand what I'm kind of getting at? I think so. Go on. Yes. Yes. So um, the other thing, which I started to read some philosophy stuff, and I found Aristotle's, Aristotle's ethics, virtue ethics, um, and it was about six or seven years ago, I started really working like the longest job I ever had, and I made a list. I kid you not, a list of, of virtues that I needed to focus on because a virtue is a habit. I mean, it's, it's things that we repeatedly do and become part of our character. And that's, that's what Aristotle believes. And I, I centrally believe it's a way of responding to the world. So I made this list and whenever something would crop up, like that, I didn't feel like I could cope with, it was like, I would meditate on the virtue I needed at the time. Um, well, like what, what's an example of one of those virtues that you would meditate on? Uh, like perseverance. Um, you know, <laughs> that was a big one because I was a big, can I curse on the podcast? Oh yeah, please do it a, do yeah. it a bunch. Cause we, people are so polite <laughs> on it because they think it's like so professional that you could do extra. <laughs> <laughs> right on. I think fuck it was, was a, was a mantra for many years, you know, again, buckling under the pressure of pain and, and emotional distress. So yeah. perseverance was, was a big one. You know, if I'm at work and my boss judges me and says, oh, you're doing this wrong, this just set off a domino effect in my brain about who I am and, oh, I'm a loser. So that's when I really need to focus on, okay, I'm sticking through this. I'm not going to run. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make it through here, and I'm going to change. And, that, and that's how change happens. You set through the, you set through the diff- discomfort, so to speak. So you practice yeah. mindfulness and also – um, you made a list of virtues. It's like, some, I mean, it sounds like something in between a, a planned action and a value or something like that. Be, and you were able to extrapolate from those virtues, real life experiences. It's like, all right, one thing I'm lacking is that I need to persevere. And you're able to slow down enough through mindfulness that you could think through what that means. And then you could try it out in the real world. And then it came back to you in some reinforced way. Is that a fair analysis? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as I mean, I don't know how much LPP goes into the plasticity of the brain and all that, but mm-hmm. I mean, changes in the brain are literally happening when, when we do these things and, and we're, we're always changing, you know, right. the self is a process. Yeah. We don't go into neuroplasticity, but well, I mean, we touch on it, but we don't go into it only because once you say, once you get out of the way that your brain just changes with every change that you make in your life socially, physically, then you kind there's kind of no need for the conversation anymore, you know, barring right, like right. literal, literal brain damage or something like that. It's like, <laughs> right. okay, now we can talk in total practical terms, but it's the same point. It's exactly the same point that you're making, which you like you, Mark Lewis will talk about it in spades because he's a neuroscientist and you know, it's like a, it, it, it's a peeve of his that people talk about the brain all the time. And he's saying the brain's always, fu- it's what a meatheaded argument to make. You know, he uses the taxi cab in London, taxi cab driver in London example about how those people's brains change because of the habitual drives that they make. So it's sort of meaningless in a way, very meaningful in the sense that you're deprogramming from that language when you talk about brain changes. But anyway, I I digress. Yeah, I just think a lot of people have like, well, I know in the program, there's this kind of fixed view of who we are. We're kind of the same always, but that's just not true. We, we change, we evolve, we grow, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's how I see things. It's that 
Actually, Stanton Peel's daughter, Anna Peel, uh, she writes for GQ, Gentlemen's Quarterly, and she just interviewed Billy Bush. Billy Bush, I don't know if you know or remember him, but yes, you know, he's the guy. <laughs> it's hard to, <laughs> hard not to know, hard not to remember him if you know him, at least from this. But you know, he he got what do you call it canceled or whatever you call it after that whole grab him by mm-hmm. the by the whatever you know what with trump and so she visited him and he sort of was just like went through this slump kind of depressed feeling like oh, i can't build anything for myself but he did have family to rely on people helping him out he kind of went through this woe is me phase and then he decided you know i just want to i'm just going to live my best life but all of that to say you know someone like billy bush you who everybody says, oh, what a horrible guy, at some level need to accept an apology from a human being who shows that they can develop, and people do. And from, you know, better or worse kinds of things, people who I know who have been in jail for really long periods of time for violent crimes have returned and made very positive impact in the world after that because they were able to develop. People continue to develop their whole lives, and it sounds like you're no exception to that. Yeah, we shouldn't brand people. Absolutely. Now, can are you able to get into that about um, some of the legal troubles that you went through associated with drugs and things like that, and, and that it's given you difficulty now, or is that something you would rather not touch? No, no, we can talk about it. Um, I mean, most of most of what I did is, is theft-related uh, to support my addiction. Um, I have a few felonies, yes, plural. And, you know, it's not, it's not like I, I committed any armed robberies. I mean, these were, these were very petty crimes, but the, the, the charge was not petty. Obviously, a felony is a pretty big deal. Um, and that, that has been a huge hindrance. That's, that's society branding me with something um, based on who I used to be. And it's, it's going to follow me forever. And it's been a great difficulty dealing with a felony because, you know, a lot of places offer background checks and, I, uh, I've been in a lot of interviews, most interviews where people say, well, I would love to hire you. You know, it would be great if I could hire you. I, I think you would be a great fit, but because corporate says this, I cannot. So, um, I, what was it a few years ago? I, well, actually I think it was a couple years ago. I, I almost got on at the health department in the it department. Wow. Um, yeah, I was so excited. And I, and the guy in the, all three of the administrators were fighting for me to work there. But it came down from Tallahassee that I could not work there. So, so you're a skilled guy, obviously intelligent. I've, this is my second time speaking with you, and you're you're able to cut through, like act on first principles and cut through bullshit like anyone I've ever talked to with a PhD. I mean, it sounds like you have skills and things to offer, but you're bogged down by a lasting felony charge on your record. Did you make? Did you go through any sort of like restorative process, like returning money that was owed or maybe you didn't get a chance to? No, all of it, all of it was returned. Um, you know, that that's all done. And, and I asked an attorney about expungement and, you know, when I was 20, I had a public defender. That was the first felony. Um, and I wasn't told that when you plead guilty in the state of Florida, that you can't have it expunged. Like you basically sacrifice any ability to do that, to have it sealed. And then I went into drug court. And I think one of the, the things with drug court is you have to plead guilty. Like 
And in some cases they do withhold adjudication or something, but I think pleading guilty is like part of the package. So, yeah. So how did you, um, you know, with that weight on your shoulder, what are the kinds of life channels that you were, that you were able to find and pursue that keep you moving forward and non-addicted? Well, I mean, right now, I mean, I have a job that I do care about. I mean, it's not a prestigious job. I'm a, I'm a truck driver, but it's, I go to work every day and I try to do the best I can. Um, even if it's not prestigious, it, it does give me a sense of purpose. Um, and I'm a parent. My son is immensely important to me. And partly the reason why I'm on the phone right now, it's like, what would I want him to do? if he was petrified to do something, I'd want him to face it. So I, I'm not, I don't want to be one of those do as I say, not as I do people. Mm. You know? <laughs> I want to I walk through it. So, um, and, and I just crave learning now. Like I feel like my head was in the sand for, for years. Um, and I think starting out with, with drugs, there was like a curiosity about something deeper about life. And now, now I can, I can seek, you know, I can seek in a more positive way, if that makes sense. Yeah. And do you do any, any of the, the standard treatment kinds of things? Or are you like, was there total outgrowth from that? Total outgrowth from that. I don't really even look at anything that I do as like treatment or recovery. I just kind of live my life. And, you know, it's, it's just like with smoking. I quit smoking a year ago. I very rarely think about, you know, my addiction or, I mean, unless I need to talk about it, I'm in Facebook groups with people that um, have, are in recovery. And I try to I try to share input when I can in those groups to be to be helpful. And and that's one thing, like I really want to be helpful in this in this arena some way, like and which is why I initially called you is I feel like the language that we're using around addiction and and all that is is being more harmful than helpful. Um. So that that's given me purpose and and hopefully I can find avenues to to help. Imagine, man, I, I feel like the world needs you because here you are a guy who, you know, you're talking about how your head's kind of submerged in the sand so often, especially when it came down to you know, these government agencies and a medical theocracy telling you that there's something damaged about you. And maybe you felt like that wasn't true, but you couldn't really push back on that. Like what was you had to be wrong somehow if all the people were telling you to do it and you're able somehow still to carve out a niche for yourself in a, in just total practical common sense of a way you're just living your best life do you did things like meditation you know writing down virtues and practicing them trying things that are difficult even though they scare you or make you nervous um, have work that you could decide not to find meaningful, but you find meaning in every moment of it. You have a child that you're raising. I mean, the, I feel like you are the kind of person who there need to be a million of. Every time I talk to someone like you, which there aren't that many. I mean, there are people who are in your situation and maybe afraid to speak up, but there aren't that many people willing to speak up, use their own name, you know, talk out loud and then spend their time helping other people in similar situations it makes me really, really hopeful about the kind of message that I would like to get across. I mean, do you have any plans or ideas about how to become immersed in that kind of work? Uh, not exactly. I mean, I, I do, 
I think about finishing school. Um, I mean, I have 50 credits at the community college, but due to some life circumstances, I had to kind of put that on the on the back burner. But, you know, I thought about maybe getting a counseling degree. But my concern is if I get a counseling degree and I'm, am I going to be shoved in, you know, some kind of 12 step or orthodoxy and not be able to kind of be open about it, you know, yeah. kind of find what works for each person kind of thing. So I'm really not sure. I did. I just started a Facebook group. Maybe, maybe that'll be helpful. What's the group? <laughs> it is called Rethink Addiction Info and Support is the name of it. All right. People got to, is it free? Like, can people just join it or is it a private group or? It's a public group, but you do have to request to, to come in and then I just approve it. Got it. And yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of like a trillion things you could do. Not that I should impose on you what to do, but besides this podcast, I host another podcast and I, you know, enough people became interested in it. I did it for free for a couple of years, but enough people became interested in it that I made like a Patreon membership kind of a thing and uh, like paid to podcast now. And then I write articles and I'm paid to write articles for um, places. And I, I just, I see that if you want to do something like that, I, I know that I know that you'll get in there somewhere and happy to help out where I can and continue that conversation. And also I would encourage people if they're listening and can think, of an ideal opportunity for Jason, either in your organization or otherwise, or if they need help, maybe, maybe reach out. Is there a way for people to contact you? Yeah. Uh, through the group, I don't have a Twitter anymore. I kind of had to unplug from the Twitter verse. Uh, good it can on be you. A little, yeah. It can be a little chaotic. So. Seriously. Um, yeah. I, I think that's probably the best way is through the, through the group or through Facebook. Well, Jason, just one more time. Thank you so, so, so much for, being willing and kind of brave enough to share your story and for being the first non life process, life process program person to share a recovery story that doesn't involve 12 steps as a way forward and doesn't involve being bogged down by a brain disease as a way forward, but just finding meaning and purpose in life. And I commend you for it. And thank you again. Thank you, Zach, very much. And thanks for what you're doing.